As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Early Stuart England, Episode 81, The Politics of Culture. I mentioned last week that we'd be stepping back from the narrative to take a closer look at the role art and culture played in the political world of the early Stuarts. But I haven't just placed this episode randomly in our series. Charles and those who surrounded him had clear ideas on what literature and the arts could achieve. And as his personal rule matured in the 1630s, his cultural program matured with it. In other words, although we'll be exploring long-term trends in the arts in this episode, the mid-1630s were a particularly fertile period for the relationship between art and political power. It also makes sense to tackle this topic now, because we are nearing the end of a period of stability in the 1630s. We are now exiting the third stage of the narrative. As a reminder, we're dealing with four main phases. The first started when James came down from Scotland to take the throne. This phase was defined by James's attempts to bring stability and order to England. He was successful in some areas, for instance crafting a consensus in the church and overseeing a peacetime trade boom, but less successful in others, mismanaging parliament and crown finances. This first phase of the story came to an end with the Synod of Dort and the Bohemian Crisis, as European events put tremendous stress on Jacobean politics. This brought us into the second phase the war years. This period was defined by crisis and political turmoil. Charles and Buckingham's war turned out to be a gigantic mess. Parliaments became even more heated than in James's heyday, and eventually Charles had to put the kibosh on the war and Parliament in order to save his crown. Charles instead led England into the third phase of the narrative, personal rule. After a rocky start, Charles used the peace to consolidate his government's control over England. Trade and prosperity returned to the kingdom, and the crown exerted more direct control than ever over the church and taxation. We are now about to enter the fourth and final phase, the slow unraveling of Charles's regime. Over the next 20 episodes or so, the remarkable achievements of the personal rule will disintegrate due to growing resistance in all three of Charles's kingdoms, and, let's be honest, some poor decisions on his part. Any study of Charles's court culture belongs in that third period of peaceful tranquility. But it is fitting that this episode is at the tail end of that tranquility. As we'll see, even as Charles and his friends enjoyed their fine paintings and diverting theater productions, the populace outside the court bubble grew restless. 
As a second disclaimer before we get started, I'm going to be selecting a few men and women to focus on, in hopes of making some sense of the cultural trends we'll encounter. I am conscious that the cast of thousands that is building up over the course of this series can be somewhat daunting, so I'll just say that these guys will not be main characters in the future narrative. The painter Anthony Van Dyke is not going to reappear five episodes down the road delivering a speech about constitutional law in Parliament. Though I should note that artists, and painters in particular, could often be found moonlighting as unofficial diplomats or spies. But for the most part, these guys are important for this episode. You won't need to remember their life stories to make sense of the events we encounter later. What I hope you do take out of this episode is the ideas their work represented, and how that work influenced the political world. So with that out of the way, let's start with a crash course in the cultural history of the early Stuart court. At the beginning of our period, England was not exactly a hotbed of European culture. In part, this is due to the kingdom's relative poverty compared to the great European courts at Paris, Madrid, or Vienna, not to mention the various Italian states. You recall that several characters in our story, not least of all Charles himself, were blown away by the splendor they found in Spain. Additionally, James himself didn't seem to place a priority on patronizing Europe's great artists or fashioning any distinctive style. That he left to his family. At first, his wife Anne, who grew up in the lavish royal court of Denmark. If you were an aspiring artist in the early years of James's reign, it was the queen, rather than the king, that you sent your demo tapes to, or whatever the 17th century equivalent was. Anne's son, Prince Henry, followed in her footsteps and poached some of her best talent when he set up his court as Prince of Wales. Henry loved lovely things, but he also saw the ideological potential of art. You recall that the prince was building a brand for himself as the Protestant savior of Europe. What better way to do that than through visual representation? Henry commissioned portraits of himself as a medieval knight, slaying the evil of Catholicism. He also organized masks with deliberately provocative themes. You may recall the one he put on to celebrate the marriage of his sister Elizabeth to Frederick of the Palatine. It cast the couple as paragons of the light, leading a crusade against the darkness. The message was clear the young prince was ushering in a new, heroic age. Of course, Prince Henry died before he could usher in anything. Five years later, in 1619, Queen Anne died as well, and the English court was bereft of its leading patrons. But luckily, the collections of Henry and Anne were consolidated in the possession of one man, Prince Charles. Charles hadn't shown much interest in art before his mother's death, but once he inherited all her paintings and sculptures, plus those of his brother, Charles seems to have become a devoted connoisseur. His trip to Spain four years later spurred the prince on to greater heights. In between battles with Oliveris, he and Buckingham dropped an insane amount of money on paintings. Charles developed a particular love for Titian, a 16th century Venetian artist known for his vivid colors. When Prince Charles became King Charles, his artistic tastes dominated the English scene. In part, this was because Charles took a far more active role than James in patronizing artists. During the Jacobean period, painters and writers had multiple options for patrons. The Earls of Pembroke, Arundel, Southampton, and many others attracted all sorts of artists. For example, it seems like all of them were linked to Shakespeare at one point or another. But when Charles took over, he became the target patron for all aspiring artists. Aristocratic patrons still commissioned work, but if you were an artist of any ambition, these guys were just stepping stones. It was the king's eye you wanted to catch. Therefore, the king's ideas about art and politics permeated the culture, even for those artists he was not directly connected to. 
But Charles's reign was also different because the cultural environment had changed since the beginning of the 17th century. The Jacobean peace allowed English culture to mingle more freely with that of Spain and Italy. Charles was representative of a generation of elite men and women who grew up thinking of the Catholics of Southern Europe as fellow Christians, not enemies. The Grand Tour, the informal education young men received by traveling through Europe, took off in the 17th century. More and more young Englishmen went to the continent, not to fight in wars, but to learn Italian and look at pictures. At the beginning of his reign, Charles was in his mid-twenties, and his inner circle was populated by other men of his generation. Endymion Porter, who had joined Charles on his quest to Spain, Francis Coddington, who had done so as well, the Earl of Holland, who had negotiated the king's marriage to Henrietta Marie in Paris. All these men were of a similar age to Charles, and most of them had spent their youth soaking up continental culture. French, Flemish, Spanish, and Italian influences could be felt all through the court. This was especially true of Queen Henrietta Maria, Charles's closest friend in the 1630s. She brought with her a love of the arts she had developed at court in Paris. In particular, Henrietta Maria was obsessed with French-language pastoral plays. She remained in contact with the cultural elite in France and competed with them, to the point that some said the best French-language plays in Europe were being put on in London. In other words, court culture in the 1630s had become far more coherent than in previous decades, with the king's aesthetic sense driving artistic production. And it had become far more cosmopolitan, with continental influences abounding. Nowhere was this continental influence stronger than in painting. Over the 1620s, a few aristocratic collectors had scoured Europe for works. The earls of Arundel and Pembroke, as well as the Duke of Buckingham, all had networks of agents buying up pieces in Spain, Italy, France, and even the Ottoman Empire. By the 1630s, collecting had become part of the expected lifestyle of the nobility. When he visited Charles to talk peace in 1630, the Flemish artist Peter Paul Rubens marveled at the nation of connoisseurs he found. The English were, he said, a people rich and happy in the lap of peace and he reported of the incredible quality of excellent pictures, statues, and ancient inscriptions which are to be found in this court. Charles was, of course, the king of collectors, so to speak. He had made his first big purchases while in Madrid to the consternation of Lionel Cranfield, who had to send Charles the money for them. Later in the 1620s, he took advantage of the decline of the Gonzaga family of Mantua by buying their collection. As the Gonzagas had been rulers of an Italian state through the Renaissance, this was an impressive haul. By the 1630s, Charles wasn't content to simply buy up the works of old Renaissance masters. He wanted to commission new works from the best artists currently living. In his search for the best, he landed on the Flemish painter Anthony van Dyck. Born in Antwerp in 1599, van Dyck was just a few months older than Charles. He was the son of a silk merchant, but the van Dycks had art in their genes. Anthony's grandfather and brother were painters before him. While still a teenager, Van Dyck's father was financially ruined, putting a tremendous amount of pressure on him to provide for the family through his work. He did this by getting an assistance job in the workshop of Peter Paul Rubens. The immediate returns weren't great, but working for Rubens connected Van Dyck to an international network of patrons. Turning these connections into regular work took a while, though. In 1620, John Villiers paid for Van Dyck to come to England to see if he couldn't land some customers. You may remember John as the Duke of Buckingham's brother, who Edward Cook forced his daughter to marry. But despite the Villiers' connection, Van Dyck failed to land a patron. Instead, he headed out to Italy, where he spent most of the 1620s. 
But Van Dyck did not have much luck there either. The experience was educational, but the Flemish Van Dyck found himself undermined by native Italian artists. They did not welcome the foreign competition. Dejected, Van Dyck returned to Antwerp in 1632, just in time to get his big break. King Charles, rapidly turning into one of the most active patrons in Europe, had taken an interest in Van Dyck's work, likely through his relationship with Rubens. Van Dyck accepted an invitation to England, and by 1633 he had ousted the Dutchman Daniel Mytens as the principal painter at court. Now, you'll forgive me for the following, as I'm no great discerner of art, but what attracted Charles to Van Dyck was not just his skill, but the political import of his paintings. By this, I don't mean that Van Dyck was a partisan figure per se. He was good friends with several men in the pro-Spanish faction, like Richard Weston, but his work displayed an ideology that all court factions could get behind. So what was this ideology his images espoused? Portraits were Van Dyck's bread and butter, so they're a good place to start. On Van Dyck's canvases, the leading men of England were not swaggering warriors, but men comfortable in command, self-assured in both restraining their own impulses and those of others. Malcolm Smuts, the leading historian on Charles's court culture, describes Van Dyck's portraits as carrying a quiet confidence. This was a significant departure from the Tudor period. Picture Henry VIII's signature posture, aggressive, almost boastful about his power, hands-on thrust-out hips. Under Van Dyck's brush, Charles was every bit as powerful, but much more subtle about communicating that power. In other words, Charles was so powerful that he didn't need to prove it to you. Smuts suggests that this was the birth of the celebrated English quality of understatement. Charles and the court figures who surrounded him were not haughty or domineering, but men who inspired respect through their wit, reason, and self-control. Since talking about painting can only get you so far, I've posted links on the website to one of Van Dyck's portraits of Charles, and one of his brother, Prince Henry, painted earlier in 1608. Henry's is very much of the Tudor style, the prince as a man of action, in the process of drawing his sword. Van Dyck's Charles, on the other hand, is composed, and impossible to ruffle. This focus on self-discipline meshed well with the political ideology we've seen Charles fashioning over the 1630s. Men like John Eliot had tried to stir up popular passions, infecting Parliament with the politics of anger and resentment. Charles, via Van Dyck, argued that true stability could only come when leaders could calmly apply reason to political issues. Reckless politicians created chaotic, failed states. Similarly, Van Dyck's portraits were a response to radical Puritan religion. Fiery sermons or angry denunciations of church practice might play well to a crowd, but the church could only fulfill its function if it was led by men who could dispassionately contemplate the divine. As painting was one of Charles's passions, Van Dyck's studio in Blackfriars became a favorite haunt of the king. Charles even had an expanded landing constructed along the river so he could visit Van Dyck more easily. The king, among others, considered Van Dyck the reincarnation of Titian, with his ability to paint with a vividness that never strayed into ostentation. Others followed the king's lead, and Van Dyck had a steady flow of customers. Thomas Wentworth liked to boast that Van Dyck himself sketched the outline for his portrait. This was a rare honor indeed, as Van Dyck employed a team of Dutch and Flemish assistants, allowing him to pump out portraits like an assembly line. The going rate for a full portrait was 60 pounds, while the less ambitious could get their head and shoulders done for 20. Van Dyck's portrait work was so prolific that he shaped European perceptions of English men and women. Sophia, one of the daughters of Frederick and Elizabeth, was shocked when she met Queen Henrietta Maria. As she put it, 
Van Dyck's portraits had so accustomed me to thinking that all English women are beautiful that I was amazed to find a small creature with skinny arms and teeth like defense works sticking out of her mouth. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Paintings were not the only way the ideology of Charles's court made its mark. As powerful as images were, the written word has a knack for promoting ideas as well. James had done his share of patronizing writers, for instance, bringing William Shakespeare's acting company under his royal wing, or putting on the plays of Ben Jonson. But these had always been professional relationships. These writers never became members of the political elite themselves. But at Charles's court, your pen could be your ticket to a plum court position. One prominent example was John Suckling, a poet, court wit, and inveterate gambler. Suckling was said to be so obsessed with cards that he spent hours studying the mathematical variables in a deck. Not satisfied with the card games on offer in the 17th century, he's also said to have invented cribbage to alleviate his boredom. This manic energy found its way into his writing as well, and Charles invited Suckling into his inner circle as a result. While few were as exuberant as Suckling, a group of similarly inclined young writers began to surround Charles at court. They were known as the Cavalier Poets, for their celebration of gallantry and life's pleasures. Though in keeping with the virtue of self-restraint, they were not hedonists. Rather, their work argued for a rational balance between pleasure and virtue. One of the most successful was Thomas Carey, a courtier poet five years older than Charles. Although spelled Carew, the family pronounced his name Carey. At first, Carey followed his family's traditional vocation, the law. But during his time at Middle Temple, one of the inns at court, he developed a reputation for avoiding his studies at all costs. Luckily, the inns at court were not just quasi-law schools, but also incubators for England's literary community. Carey quickly gained a reputation as one of London's best young wits. However, Carey's father, Matthew, was not impressed with his son's career prospects, and hoped to entice him towards a more respectable life in the diplomatic corps. So off young Thomas went to the continent, to serve on the staff of Dudley Carleton for a diplomatic tour of Italy. Again, it's unclear how devoted Carey was to his actual job, but he soaked up the Italian culture. His later work would be influenced by the writers he found in the various Italian courts he visited. Carey remained on Carleton's staff when the diplomat landed a permanent position at The Hague in the United Provinces of the Netherlands in 1616. We met Carleton three years later, when the Synod of Dort was held, but by then, Carey was long gone. Almost immediately after arriving in the Netherlands, he had gotten into hot water for writing a satirical poem about Dudley Carleton and his wife. This did not impress the boss, and so Carey was sent back home. In 1619, he landed another diplomatic post, this one in Paris. Once again, Carey spent most of his time hobnobbing with the French literati, rather than doing boring paperwork. In fact, when he could be bothered to put pen to paper, it was to write poems to potential patrons back in England. By the time he returned home in the early 1620s, he was a widely read poet. His work spread amongst the kingdom's elite in manuscript form. Carey's big breakthrough came when he linked up with the Villiers family, headed, of course, by the Duke of Buckingham. 
The opportunity came through one of Buckingham's hapless brothers, Christopher Villiers. Christopher, or Kit as he was known, was a bit of an embarrassment to the family. A series of courtships, which all failed disastrously, made him a laughingstock in London. Gossip mongers described Kit as unattractive and unintelligent, and he became a metaphor for the upjumped Villiers family, trying to force its way into elite society. In 1624, Christopher, likely with the aid of his powerful brother, enlisted the support of Thomas Carey. With a rising young poet as his romantic guide, Kit finally landed himself a wife, Elizabeth Harvey, the daughter of a wealthy London merchant. John Chamberlain, the newsletter writer, attributed Kit's success to a lapse in his new father-in-law's sanity, but the Villiers family credited Carey. For the next few years, the Villiers family acted as Carey's primary patrons. Even in death, Carey got some value out of the family. He wrote a widely distributed elegy after Buckingham's assassination. Then he wrote a few more in 1630, when both Christopher and Buckingham's daughter Mary died. A rival poet, Philip Massinger, mocked Carey as a sycophant, writing servile encomiums to some great man's name. But Carey's work made an impression on the one man who mattered, the king. Charles, moved by this loyalty to his friend's memory and family, appointed Carey to serve in his privy chamber as the royal taster. Daily contact with the king solidified Carey's position as one of the leading poets in the kingdom. Now a prominent voice at court, Carey's work began to inspire like-minded poets. The resulting cavalier tradition celebrated love, especially of women. It had been no coincidence that courtship had been so important in Carey's rise. This opened up the cavalier poets to accusations of vapid sensualism. Some of Carey's work was even denounced as naked eroticism. But in keeping with the king's worldview, this was a celebration of desire that had been civilized by reason and self-discipline. In other words, Carey's work could be almost explicitly sexual, but that was okay because it was so finely constructed. Perhaps related to their focus on love and desire, rather than, say, philosophy and God, the cavalier poets often looked to the great women of court to be their patrons. Women, after all, provided a key function in cavalier ideology. It was women who steered the raw power and emotion of men into more civilized channels. This view of the genders opened up opportunities for flattery. Queen Henrietta Maria was, of course, a major patron. Another important female power broker was Lucy Hay, the Countess of Carlisle. The Countess ruled the roost in the Queen's bedchamber, and hosted regular meetings of the literary elite of the kingdom. Like many other figures at court, she was of the same generation as the royal couple, just one year older than Charles. Lucy was born Lucy Percy, the daughter of the Earl of Northumberland, the man placed in the tower for his alleged involvement in the gunpowder plot back in 1605. Despite her father's treason, Lucy managed to parlay her wit and beauty into an advantageous marriage to James Hay, the Earl of Carlisle. Carlisle was one of the close friends James brought with him from Scotland, so the marriage brought Lucy, now Lucy Hay, Countess of Carlisle, into the inner circle of the royal family. Nevertheless, her father, as the head of the ancient Percy family that had held the northern border against Scottish raiders for generations, did not want his daughter marrying a Scot. He offered her £20,000 to turn Carlisle down. But she refused and began building her own political network. Her opportunity came with the arrival of Henrietta Maria in 1625. For the first time since Queen Anne's death in 1619, women had a base of political power from which to operate the Queen's bedchamber. At first, the Countess of Carlisle faced stiff competition, both from Henrietta Maria's French friends and from Buckingham's wife and mother, 
but as we've seen, the Queen's French household was banished as the French alliance fell apart. At first, the Countess appeared to strike an alliance with the Villiers women, and there were even rumours that she had taken Buckingham as a lover. But when Buckingham began his war with France, Lucy saw another opportunity. She split with the Villiers women and presented herself to Henrietta Maria as a friend of France. By the time Buckingham died and the French war ended, she had consolidated her position in the Queen's inner circle. As the resident beauty at court, with a position so close to the throne, the Countess of Carlisle attracted a wide range of poets and political climbers to her cultural gabfests. This opened up a pathway to influence a court that had been entirely absent in James's reign, or even the 1620s. But poetry wasn't all that the Countess and her friends discussed. One of her friends, who often dropped in on the parties when she was in town, was the Duchess of Chevreuse, the ubiquitous conspirator of France. The line between artist and politician was never entirely clear. This mixture of art and politics was most obvious in the world of theatre, and more specifically, the court mask. Although James had been fond of masks too, Charles expanded and refined the political messaging they contained. Every December, all business at court would stop so that the leading men and women of the kingdom could rehearse for the Christmas mask. The mask was part theatrical production, part party, and part political statement. Although written and staged by professional theatermen, the performers were the royal family and their inner circle of friends at court. So the political elite didn't passively receive the message of the mask. They actively performed it. At the center of every mask was the king. James had always positioned himself as Solomon, the wise king whose just decisions maintained order in the kingdom. Charles, on the other hand, shared the stage with his wife. He usually took the role of the gallant knight, defending the kingdom of light from the evils of darkness. At his side was the queen, whose beauty inspired the king to action and civilized his raw, manly power. Much more so than painting or poetry, masks were collaborative affairs. In addition to the performers, they required a playwright and a set designer. These were not the shoestring productions you might see in London's theatres. A successful mask had to inspire awe and confound wealthy audiences. In other words, production values mattered. In fact, the leading designer who defined the early Stuart mask, Inigo Jones, was more of an architect than anything else. Jones was the one exception to the generational wave of cultural figures at court. He was a good 25 years older than most of the men and women we've met in this episode. The son of a London cloth worker, Jones probably started his professional life as a joiner employed at St. Paul's Cathedral. As a young artisan, he had limited opportunities for education, and his tendency towards phonetic spelling has led historians to assume he was self-taught. Jones certainly was an ambitious young man, and ventured to Italy for much of his twenties to work and study painting. By the time James arrived on the throne, Jones, now in his thirties, was back in England, where his hybrid skills in construction and the arts won him a job building sets for Queen Anne's masks. Eventually, he formed a partnership with the playwright Ben Johnson. Johnson wrote the masks, and Jones designed elaborate backdrops and props. With royal resources at his disposal, Jones revolutionized set design. He mastered dynamic set changes that meshed seamlessly with the movements of the players, clouds that moved across the stage, oceans that rose and fell, and all manner of rope and pulley contraptions. With a painter's eye, Jones's favorite trick was to play with perspective, often creating multiple stages that could move independently. As you may recall, Prince Henry poached Jones from his mother to act as his surveyor of works, essentially an architect kept on royal retainer. 
Though he and the prince had many grand schemes in mind, Henry died before any of them could pan out. As a result, Jones followed Princess Elizabeth to the Palatine after a marriage to Frederick and built some additions to the palace at Heidelberg. From there, Jones returned to Italy, this time with the Earl of Arundel to study Italian architecture. He took meticulous notes of materials and construction techniques, often complaining that many of the books he had read back in England gave faulty information about the great structures of the Italian Renaissance. He returned home determined to bring Italy to England. His masterpiece was the Italian-inspired banqueting house at Whitehall, which we saw in episode 44, The Patriot Coalition. Buckingham delivered his narrative of his trip to Madrid in its main hall. It quickly became the location of the Christmas masks. Jones had designed the building in which his specially designed sets shone. Serving Charles as surveyor of works, as he had Henry, Jones also worked to modernize London's buildings. The city's core remained a convoluted maze of medieval structures, but Jones had a free hand in the growing suburbs of the city. He worked closely with the Earl of Bedford in turning Covent Garden into an imitation of Italy's urban landscape. You weren't truly a member of the urban elite unless you had Inigo Jones splash your London residence with a little continental flair. In the early 1630s, Jones and Ben Johnson had a falling out, leading to Jones taking over producing the Christmas masks himself. Both men claimed to be the true genius behind the early Stuart mask as an art form, but Jones won out. Johnson consoled himself with writing biting satire about the uneducated artisan in the London theatres. What's important for us is that Jones had total control over the court masks during the 1630s, as Charles's cultural ideology reached its maturity. Speaking of which, I feel like I've been talking more about the artists of Charles's court and less about the ideology that united their art. Van Dyck, Carey, and Jones all shared a certain refinement and discipline. Van Dyck's portraits had their elegant and quiet confidence. Carey wrote of the pleasures of the civilized world, and Jones brought the mathematical precision of the Italian Renaissance to England. These were all, on some level, appeals to Charles's worldview. Like anyone else, his view of the world was shaped by what he saw around him. In part, it was a reaction against the court his father kept. Charles turned away from the licentiousness of James's era, the boisterous parties, the undue influence of the king's friends, and the unseemly scandals, of which the Overbury murder was just the most prominent. But Charles wasn't a prude either. He was equally unimpressed with the puritanical world of the, well, Puritans. Desire need not be feared or abandoned. It just had to be directed and restrained through civilizing art. Puritans were shocked by Carey's near-pornographic work but it was couched in such practiced and refined verse that it could never be body or common. Henrietta Maria played an important role in striking this balance. In the early years, before the marriage really clicked, Charles was in danger of becoming a bit of a prude. He fined members of his court for swearing, and blushed at uncouth or graphic language. When Henrietta Maria became a real partner in power after the death of Buckingham, she lent her experience of growing up in the somewhat jollier court at Paris. But more important than that, the queen herself became an important ideological figure. She, through her female beauty, achieved the balance Charles sought. As a wife and mother, she became a legitimate and dignified outlet for sexual desire. At the same time, her feminine charms moderated unruly male desire, taming it and diverting it to civilized ends. When it came to his wife, Charles's personal feelings and ideology mixed together. 
Their marriage was perhaps the most loving in the history of the British monarchy, and it's likely that Charles thought of Henrietta Maria's civilizing influence in personal and political terms. This all neatly translated into Charles's attitude towards political issues like Parliament or the Church. Without decorum and civilized discourse, Parliament could and did turn dangerous. Meanwhile, in religion, a simple direct connection to God was not enough. Man needed the civilizing influence of ritual and ceremony to properly train his soul for salvation. What's the function of art, asked Charles, if not to build the soul's capacity for awe? This was precisely the role that the beauty of holiness played in William Laud's ceremonial church. So, if we're treating the art of Charles's court as a vehicle for a political message, the one question we haven't addressed yet is how successful that message was. What kind of an audience did these paintings, poems, and plays reach? And what did those audiences make of them? The first thing to note is that although I've been talking about the ideology of crown-sponsored art, it's important not to overestimate Charles's power here. We're not talking about a modern authoritarian propaganda state. Charles had the ability to set the standard that prospective artists aimed for if they wanted his patronage, but he did not have much ability or desire to suppress art he didn't like. There were no purges or demands for ideological purity. Political ideology was in fact just one of many things Charles looked for in a piece of art. He was renowned throughout Europe for his ascetic eye, and quite often simply wanted more pretty things than his fellow collectors. A second point to make is that we've been dealing with a fairly narrow audience in this episode. The vast majority of English men and women never saw a Van Dyke painting, or one of Inigo Jones's Christmas masks. Charles wasn't aiming at the population as a whole, but the elites of society. But you can see Charles's ideas about art and beauty we've covered today popping up in other aspects of his rule that did have a wider audience, for instance the church. Or take the Book of Sports. You'll recall from episode 73, An Unspectacular Orthodoxy, that in 1633, Charles distributed the Book of Sports, a guide for what recreational activities were appropriate for local communities. Puritans denounced sports and dancing on the Sabbath, but Charles's directives argued that such activities fostered community solidarity. This was the same balance he struck at court. Fun was a virtue, so long as it was sufficiently guided by civility. So what about the other worldviews this ideology of civilized art was competing with? How did Charles's court look from the outside? Obviously, not everyone bought into what Charles was selling. The old cult of the Protestant warrior still held a certain appeal. There was nothing particularly civilizing about hacking Spaniards to death, and yet many Englishmen still looked to the Elizabethan past for the role models. It didn't help that the men who best represented this Elizabethan ideal were often excluded from court. Men like the Earl of Essex, whose father was the quintessential Elizabethan warrior, or the Earl of Warwick, who spent his time hunting Spanish ships on the high seas, not looking at paintings. They both seemed to offer a radically different take on what made an Englishman admirable. This tied into another criticism of Charles's court. It was all much too foreign. Thomas Carey and Inigo Jones were representative of the court's artists in that they had spent long periods on the continent and absorbed the cultural traditions of France and Italy. Van Dyck himself was a foreigner. In a sense, this was when England finally left its backward provincialism and became truly European. But for some in England, the cosmopolitan nature of the kingdom's elite was not something to be celebrated. Ominously, most of these cultural traditions artists were borrowing from, in France, Italy, or Spain, were Catholic. Which brings us to those most directly opposed to court culture, hardline Calvinists. 
what Charles and his buddies would call Puritans. If Thomas Carey's sexualized poetry served to mock Puritan prudishness, the Puritans fired back with their own attacks. You may recall one of these attacks from episode 73, An Unspectacular Orthodoxy. In 1633, the Puritan writer William Prynne had his ears clipped for denouncing the theater as unchristian, especially the women who participated in court masks. They were no better than prostitutes. Although he'd avoided using her name, the obvious target of his attack was Queen Henrietta Maria. I mention William Prynne for two reasons. First of all, the discussion of court culture hopefully adds context to the severe punishment he received. He wasn't just attacking the Queen, he was attacking a political project Charles had invested quite a bit of time and effort in. But secondly, Prynne is a useful place to conclude this episode, as he will feature in our story next time. I mentioned at the end of last episode that 1637 would see the beginning of open resistance to Charles's regime. The opening salvo of the year came in the form of a public battle between William Laud and a small group of Puritan radicals. William Prynne, and what was left of his ears, was back for more. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.